Hey, what's up guys? I'm so pumped about this conversation I just had. I had Dr. Daniel Franz on the podcast and he is an incredible human being, just full of life, full of purpose, and truly understands what it means to to seek out meaning in your life and the value of seeking out that meaning so much so that he is actually uh i'm gonna read this here so i get it right he's a diplomat in victor frankel's logotherapy and if you're not familiar with victor frankel stay tuned we're gonna we're gonna dive a fair bit into that but uh bottom line up front is that he was a psychiatrist who was captured by the German Nazi forces and was imprisoned for three years in one of the, or in several of their concentration camps. And he wrote Man's Search for Meaning. Um, very, very powerful stuff and started this idea of logotherapy or the use of therapy with the purpose behind it being uh, your search for meaning, the power of your search for meaning. So I think that that's, that's very powerful. But Dr. Dan also is a licensed mental health counselor. He's also a licensed clinical addiction counselor. He's also an MBTI certified practitioner and facilitator. And very, very cool, he's also the host of the Meaning Pod, excuse me, the Meaning Project podcast, um, where I was actually a guest on there recently, and so you guys can check out my episode where he got to shoot some questions my way and we got to discuss uh, my, some of the military background and the training and the resilience training that I did there and how that's transitioned into now the civilian and private sectors. Um, and this was my chance. This was our round two of sorts uh, where I was able to kind of take the driver's seat and ask Dr. Dan a lot about him, his background, and how he came in to this logo therapy and what drives him and what what makes him believe that this is such a viable course of action for people especially in this day and age stay tuned i think you guys are gonna love it I am experimenting with something when it comes to uh, having guests of the show introduce themselves. And so you're going to be my first one in, in the shoot for this experiment. Uh, excellent. <laughs> Everyone always wants to say, uh, you know, tell me about yourself. Give me a little bit about your background. Mm -hmm. I want to do something a little bit different. And I think this aligns with who you are and what you teach and what you preach. All right. So you're not going to warn me, are you? Or nope. are you? <laughs> nope. We're oh, rolling sweet. right into it. I love it. <laughs> I know that you're up for the task, which is why I felt confident. Cool. So I want you to just complete this sentence. So I, I believe that the, these are the two most powerful words for any individual in any situation throughout their entire life. And so I just want you to finish the sentence. It is, I am, and then proceed. So from your perspective, not from me, <laughs> Dr. Dan is, or Hmm. <laughs> and you only want two words. No, no, no. I'm just saying oh. my, my, the two words are I am. Those are the two most powerful words. And so you oh, start okay, your gotcha, sentence gotcha. with I am, and then you, you complete it however you see fit. You could take five minutes to do it. it doesn't oh, even very matter. cool. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
And, and, and we're recording now. You want me oh, to roll yeah. with that? Roll with it. Oh, groovy. I love it. <laughs> so, yeah, I am, when it comes to this podcast, a logotherapist, a helper, a coach, a therapist, a speaker. Um, but most importantly, uh, where I sit today, I am a father and a husband uh, who does all of these things to uh, support my family and my community and and to well am i look i'm a little selfish too i like to help myself out and feel good helping others so i think somehow that's why I, how i found myself on your podcast and doing this kind of work i think that's great that's beautiful that's that is i feel like this is a proof of concept for this i love it i think it's a great way to start yeah that's, that's awesome Give it a shot. cool there were there's i definitely want to dive into logotherapy because mm-hmm. i hadn't even heard about this until i until we met Mm -hmm. um and so then i became really intrigued and i was already very familiar with victor frankel but we will we'll dive into that uh in a little bit the first thing i thought that was really important with how you framed that sentence that opener was with context there was Mm -hmm. so much context you said in relation to this podcast i am and so there's there's framing there there's context that needs to happen that matter and then even within that in or outside of that more broadly not only are you those things not only are you logotherapist not only are you therapist a helper a speaker but you're also a father you're also a husband and so all of those these things have to layer and if they don't mesh they don't work and so, so wh- how how have you found or have you found <laughs> a balance or what I like to refer to it as uh, a work-life harmony rather than a balance. Because balance suggests that there's equilibrium, that there's an equal share. And I think anyone that works in in a in fields like yours or anybody's understands mm-hmm. that's not true. And mm-hmm. so how have you been able to find a kind of harmony in those? Hour by hour is the easy answer. Um, it's ironic. Uh, I, I've, I've spoken about this on a few other podcasts, including my own. Um, right over there is a list of four words and, and the number 2022. Those are my words for the year. And balance is at the top of it. And it hasn't been crossed out yet, but it probably should have been. Um, I, I think the thing we're looking at now, you know, everybody used to talk about work-life balance, um, but it, it really is a work life integration being able to do them both and do them well and for me quite honestly as you ask that question you know i am um for me it it differs hour by hour Uh, like literally in in my role 55 minute hours a four and a half minute break to uh, write some notes use the restroom and get back at it uh this morning um uh, you know my my first hour professionally was as uh, um, one of my favorite uh, psychological authors, um, Dr. Irv Yalom, Y-A-L-O-M. Dude wrote the, the Bible of group therapy years ago. But anyway, he wrote this book called Love's Executioner. And he gives case studies about how he had to kind of play that role. And sadly, you know, the first time I read this as, a, as, a, as an undergrad, I'm like, oh, that's horrible. Therapists have to like help people end relationships. And that was the beginning of my day. It's like, man, that is, that was, it was heavy. 
And then the next hour was walking the dogs and uh, catching up on bills or something like that. That's where I had to be a, a father to the dogs and a, and a husband to get the bills paid. Yes. It's, it's so interesting. I, the, the energy that comes from each different type of task uh, is, and how that bleeds into the next and the amount of time it takes to transition, not just to the next task, but, but yourself mentally in that focus and to, to extract, especially if, if I, this is all coming from a very specific experience that I had this morning. So I was listening to the audiobook of man's search for meaning. And so, Oh man, that brings you to a real dark place real fast. It's the first two thirds are dark, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, his story is a dark story. I mean, what a great hero's journey from darkness into light. Yeah, absolutely. And so for people that aren't familiar, um, A Man's Search for Meaning was a book that was written by Viktor Frankl. And I think that you will be a much better, um, you will have the ability to to give his kind of background, what his kind of purpose was post, or maybe even pre-captive mm-hmm. uh, and everything. But who was Viktor Frankl? Yeah, so if we go pre-World War II, right? I mean, his home country of Austria, uh, was heavily involved in World War One, and didn't win. They were the losers, right? And so you can imagine being a losing nation uh, in the First World War. Times were not great as he was coming into um, his career. Uh, he started out as a young man who was quite a prodigy, um, was reading and learning in the uh, Austria, the, the Viennese uh, university system. And he learned about this gentleman by the name of Sigmund Freud. You might have heard of him. And uh, so, you know, young Viktor Frankl is, is I like to joke, you know, emailing uh, you know, Sigmund Freud. But no, he's he's corresponding with Sigmund Freud mm-hmm. at 17 years old. Incredible. And, and Freud's like, you know, you got some you got some interesting ideas here, young man. And he goes on to to study. He becomes a oh my goodness, multiple degrees, neurologist, neurologist, psychologist, psychiatrist. He, he's a medical doctor specializing in the treatment of the human mind. Right. Um, and so he formulates this idea. Freud tells us. Man is a being in search of pleasure. His student, Adler, says, no, no, no. Man is a being in search of power. And then Franco comes up and says, no, I think we're all searching for meaning. And he starts to formulate his theories. Um, he hasn't started writing it. He's just writing letters, uh, you know, uh, academic letters and, um, you know, speaking at the different universities. And, of course, uh, next comes World War II. And he has to put those theories to the test. Um, he decides, you know, he's a practicing physician and psychiatrist in Vienna, and he has a, a, a visa to come to the United States. And he, he says, and I'm not sure in many of his books, maybe even man search for meaning. He says one of the most meaningful decisions he made was to stay with his mother and father and see them through this. And wow. from that he, you know, he's taken to, he spends three years in the concentration camps, has to put his ideas to work. Um, and finds out that they do work. And that's the nature of the book, Man's Search for Meanings. The first two thirds are his experience in the concentration camps and and what his understanding of what he calls logotherapy, the therapy of meaning, how it helped him survive and, and how he nearly didn't survive. It was his, his um, relationship with fate mm-hmm. was very interesting um, mm-hmm. And the way that he chose to to assume that, especially in the hardest of times, um, 
and that I remember that there was this uh, story that he was telling that was he would reference back. I think it was to an Iranian uh, folklore um, that was all about death. And it was uh, he had a chance to escape the mm-hmm. the prison camp. Um, I, I don't know if it was Auschwitz or not, um, but it was it was one of the places that he ended up during the time. And he ended up visiting one of his patients that he was treating for tuberculosis and the guy the the one who had tb was he saw it he sensed it he's like something's going on here you know Mm -hmm. like you're leaving aren't you and he was he was like no of course not how would i leave you know that's ridiculous (laughs) so so then he goes back to his buddy who's going to take him out or he's he's working with to get out and he's like i can't go you know i just i i can't you know i'll leave it to the fates and and that ends up result it ended up resulting in in positive things i don't remember exactly well i believe i believe the train he was going to leave on he was going to either sneak on a train and that train went to he was not in a death camp yet right but that he found out later that that train he was going to leave on actually went to a death camp and everybody there was eradicated yes and the same thing happened again later in reverse where he needed Mm -hmm. to leave and then the, Mm -hmm. the place that he was at they ended up devolving into cannibalism Mm-hmm. And so right. it's just right. it's well, and even the final part of the of that part of the story on the, that last day before liberation, he was contemplating suicide as they would yes. call it running into the wire. He was done. He was tapped out. He couldn't give anymore. And he was on the verge of running into the wire and ending his own life. And that's when the Americans came and liberated that camp. That's incredible. I mean, I, chilling, which is so, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I definitely want to get into your inspiration and how you got into this, but just while we're on the topic and while we were actually discussing the book, I was taking down notes and I was like, oh, I want to talk to Dr. Dan about this. Like, this is, this is very interesting. So there's a awesome. couple of quotes that I pulled from the book that I want to read and see what your thoughts are on it. Um, let's see. He says, don't aim at success. Oh, oh my god you hit my favorite right from the start matt oh go all right let me take a deep breath my favorite quote in any of his volumes please share with your audience it's this is one it's of my incredible favorites. i look i stopped dead in my tracks i forget what i was doing but i ran to my because i was trying to take notes on my phone i stopped and i'm like nope this is i have to i ran to the computer stopped everything i was like i need to write this down this is this is a keeper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, okay. This is one to live by. Go for it's, it. Uh, it's so true. Okay. So he says, don't aim, don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you're going to miss it. For success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue. And it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself or as the byproduct of one surrender to a person other than oneself. That last line, mm-hmm. all of that was very intuitive to me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I've heard there have been reiterations of that sentiment broken down in social media bites. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, sure. But it's, I don't think that we're promoting in our current society in this age, that very last line, it's mm. one surrender to a person, to a person, not to a cause, but to a person other than oneself. Mm. And so that, that had a lot of impact for me just in the sense of, I think about 
living for my kids. I think about living for my wife and for my parents. And, and then on the flip side, I remember just right now I'm thinking about this. I, I always strive to make my parents proud. Mm. It's always, it's, it's been a core tenant of mine. And I remember when I was, I was probably 10 or 11 and I was, I was lifting weights with my dad because he was all about getting me into weightlifting. He was making me creatine shakes and stuff. He's like, you're going to be a football player. That's awesome. <laughs> and so we're lifting. And I remember, and I was like, I want to, I'm doing this for you. I, I said something to that effect. I'm like, I'm doing this for you. And he's like, you can't do it for me. Like, you're never going to stick with it. If you do it for me, you've got to do it for you. And, and I think what he was getting at was kind of the first part about this. Do it for a cause greater than yourself. It needs to be something right, right. that you're guided by. Um, and so I'm just curious about your take and the impact. Obviously, this has a lot of meaning for you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that every line of that is just so inspiring. And it was be- thank you for reading that. That was like I've read it and, and shared it and, and uh, you know, spoken it many times. But hearing somebody else say, it, I mean, it really did bring a little tear to my eyes. So thank <laughs> it's, you. For, it's it it is. It's probably my favorite quote in any book I've ever read. Now that that now that I've heard you read it, um, the idea First of all, that the, the last few lines really describe his beliefs on the true nature of love. You know, love is accepting somebody else and all of their uniqueness. And by ex- truly accepting them, um, we can see their potential and, and help them reach that potential. But we have to love them in their individuality first. And that's that idea of, of truly transcending the self to care for somebody other than ourselves, to find that that person, as he says, that is, you know, we find to be, you know, to live for, to make proud, to be more important than ourselves. And in that, um, he talks about, you know, self-transcendence is the single most amazing way to discover meaning in our lives, to step outside ourselves and to serve others. You already, you already hit on the next point that I was, that I was going to drive into. And that was, he talks about the importance of love. Mm-hmm. And, and how love is, is if suffering is an innate part of human existence and that they are inseparable by your mere existing in the world and in the universe as it is, there will be suffering. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he would have said that it was an antidote, but it just feels like the yin to the yang or the other mm-hmm. end of the balance of that scale mm-hmm. is love. And love provides meaning to suffering, right? And and suffering without meaning is is just masochism, right? I forget what he says, but it's just you know, right? It's it's terrible. Um, it, it's interesting. I was just uh, I was reading the you know one of my favorites, Doctor Jordan B. Peterson today, and he, and he was saying, what goal is so important in your life that it will help you get past the the suffering that is just innate in the human condition? I'm like, yeah, you know, and not just not just that one big goal you have for like five or 10 years, you know, the, the life goal, Hell, what's going to get you through this week? Right. You know, right. Cause this week's got some suffering in it. Right. We, you know, whether you're here in the Midwest with you and I, or, or down in Florida dealing with the hurricane, there's some suffering going on. What goal do you have this week? That is, that is so important to you, whether it's just being a good husband, father, loving your family, um, or maybe it's something more, but that I think both of them have something to say about suffering is a, is a, a part of human life. I think we need to accept it rather than try to medicate it away. That's one of my things as a, as a psychologist and psychotherapist, right? That's one of my big beliefs about that, that first quote. Do not seek happiness. Do not seek, su- seek success. It will ensue when we pursue something meaningful. That's but if so we're so powerful. busy looking for happiness, 
well, we got plenty of pills for that, but they don't work, right? And we medicated away rather than embracing the suffering to find something more meaningful. That's so true. Oh gosh, there were, there's, I would derail this conversation if I pursued this next question that involves Jordan Peterson. Um, so okay, let's take a minute, man, because that's another favorite topic. <laughs> let's derail it. Let's do it. Okay, so there was, I've, list, I've listened to a lot of Jordan Peterson and I think he has a lot of very powerful points and there's two, two things that, that stood out to me um, that almost seem like they contradict, but I don't think that they do. And so I'm interested in your perspective. So very simple things, very pragmatic. So it's, he talks one of the rules for, uh, for life in his first book in the first 12 rules mm. was, you know, I think it might be the first rules, make your bed. You know, get up in the morning yep. and make your bed. Yep. And so, and if I understand the premise correctly, it's essentially you want to start out with a win. If you can do nothing else to mark a win in your in your day, in that moment, in your life, because mm-hmm. things are so tragic all around you, you have control over this and you can make your bed. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I, you know, I, I actually really enjoy making my, I think about Jordan Peterson very frequently when mm-hmm. I make my bed in the morning. <laughs> right. Well, he taught, and interesting. I was just listening to a, to a song with that today. Your audience has to check out if they enjoy Peterson or anybody like him, Jocko Willink, uh, oh, yeah. uh, Joe Rogan. There's a, a, a great musician named Akira, the Don that takes these quotes and sets them to music. And that's, I mean, that's how I start a lot of my mornings is, you know, I get Jordan B. Peterson singing to me in the morning. It's fabulous. Oh my gosh. So highly recommend it. I just um, pulled it up. I'm so excited. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah. And I mean, ironically, his thing is called The Meaning Wave, right? That's his music is so amazing. So where was this question going? See how okay. we derailed it that quickly? Yep. yep. Derailed the derail. <laughs> no, that's great. So the second point that, uh, that I heard him make in... I believe it was his lecture series on uh, maps of meaning. Mm-hmm. And so he he was talking, he's in that, the context of it is he's in a classroom and he's mm-hmm. giving a lecture to students of mm-hmm. the university that he teaches at. And so one of the things that he's telling his students in the process of this, he's using, he's illustrating his points through breaking down Pinocchio at this point. Mm-hmm. And, which I love. I love oh, that. I think it's so powerful. A, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so the son saving the father from the belly of the beast. Oh my gosh. There's yeah. there is so I I forced my family to sit down and watch Pinocchio after that. I was like, <laughs> I don't care how old you think it is. We're not watching the new one yet. <laughs> We're yeah, gonna right, sit down right. and watch the old one. By saving his father, the wooden boy becomes a man. I'm right? there and, at the edge of my seat, like watching every scene, having just listened to the entire thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, the meaning here. And the, my family's like, what are you, what's wrong with you? Well, and that's that's one of the things that uh, Peterson points out that's pretty universal. Like any good story relates to these universal archetypes, whether it's Pinocchio or Star Wars or Marvel, any any movie, that uh, Lord of the Rings, those mm-hmm. stories, those books that have connected with us throughout history are based on these archetypes. And that's what Peterson, look, you really want to get your head spinning, try reading the book Maps of Meaning. I mean, that he wrote that for a Harvard graduate course, and I'm listening to it again right now. And every line, I'm like, oh, pause. 
I got to process that. That is just so rich. He talks about his process of writing that that book in particular, and it's incredible. It's exactly what he talks about anytime that he talks about writing. It's mm-hmm. he went through each sentence and re-edited each sentence like five or six times. He said it would take him a, a I forget the amount of time it would take to write a chapter, but it was very long and he was like i don't care it's like every single point of this is going to be rethought out time and time again to elicit the point and i think you can I, tell every yeah. i mean every line is just robust with every word you're like wait what okay this oh my goodness and it's just amazing and then to to hear him lecture on it i mean it's it's not a huge book it's a fairly decent college textbook mm-hmm. um size-wise but he can le- we could all lecture for the rest of our lives upon that and never run out of ideas to talk about. And it's so fun to watch him do that because he'll talk about I've seen him a couple times and, and he will he'll just start out with a question and then just start pacing the stage, making eye contact, making sure you're in there and paying attention. But just watching him walk through it in his own mind, like Socrates or Aristotle or Plato used to, it's it's an amazing thing to behold. It was one of those. It's so interesting that you bring those uh, Socrates and Aristotle up. I just I think I have an image of my mind of what it looked like when they were then. And it's not true. I guarantee you it was a lot dirtier than what I have in picture. But uh, uh, I just as I wish that we had the type of public areas that were constructed for beauty. And for the duration of centuries mm. you know we don't build anything especially in the west especially in the united states we build almost nothing for a thousand years from now versus if you go to europe you see the constructions that are you know, they're still there and it's incredible and we just mm. we don't do it and we don't emphasize places of of thought outside of the university you have to be a part of this this group in order to to gain access to and just a place you could walk around and be with fellow thinkers just publicly and i think it would be powerful i'm going to wrap up the jordan peterson point because i want to get more into you (laughs) um so what he had said was you have to be careful when you are if he said if you're i think this is the exact verbiage he used if you're clever you're going to trick yourself into false productivity and, you know mm. if you're clever is probably the only the exact verbiage from the rest of it's kind of a, a regurgitation in my own mind and so it, but what he was saying is and i do this as soon as he said it, i'm like i do that i do this all the time and so i will be working diligently on things that matter to me in my business and my meaning and my purpose and then I will substitute those things, especially when it's parts of it that I don't want to do, <laughs> but I know are crucially important, like sales. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Right. So I will find like, oh, well, I need to make sure that this is taken care of. You know, uh, I have to make sure that that dinner is prepped for when my daughter and my wife get home because I'm the one that works from home. And all, all of that, I need to make sure this is clean and, or I need to do that or I need to, oh, I need to go mow anything. And it's there. None of it is anything less than productive. It's all extremely productive. It's all not easy or straightforward. It all takes, uh, you know, thought and contemplation and then execution and making sure that it's done correctly. And so 
you get done. And then there's that, there's that dopamine rush. Like I had a task, I did it and now it's done. And so he said, you have to be careful because if you're clever, you're going to do that. And then once you do that, it is very hard to undo. And that is proven no less than in times when you are extremely stressed. He's like, so mm-hmm. you might get out of it. You might create a new, uh, I don't, you can help me with the, the science lingo here, <laughs> but the new, uh, I don't know if it's a dopaminergic loop or some sort of a feedback loop mm-hmm. that exists. You can create new ones, new pathways with the tasks that you want and create a reward system for those. Mm-hmm. But when things get rough, if you've set this up, when stress is interjected, if you're lack of sleep, if you have a lack of sleep, if there's a fight, if there's anything, you're going to revert back to that way. So you have to be very careful in setting that up. And man, he's so right because I, in particular in stressed out moments, that is what I'll revert to. Like I need to get stuff done. It's, it's speaking it out loud. I'm like, I need that dopamine hit. I need need to check the boxes. I need to feel that satisfaction. Give me the list. Yeah, absolutely. And and there are particular personalities that are even wired more so that way. Those strong, you know, constantly having a list in your head and you get the check. Okay. Ooh, a little bit of dopamine. That felt good. Let's do it again. Check. And before you know it, you haven't had any quiet time, any, any liminal space or, or any time to just think and, and, and marinate and meditate and pray or whatever you want to call it. We need that. And I've been hitting that a lot lately, or actually it's been hitting me from multiple sources, right? Because I can find myself in those positions of got to be busy, you know, got to get stuff done, got to do the work, got to keep the business going, got to see the people, got to help. And then all of a sudden, you know, I find myself like, oh, wow, where do, where do I go next? And uh, that message has been pretty prominent in the past few months for me is, um, you know, you, you need that quiet time. You need uh, what we call liminal space. You need sometimes as Franco calls the, the existential dynamics of where you are now and where you're going to go and, and embrace that crisis of, of recognizing you're not there yet. And sometimes you can't uh, task list yourself to being there. Sometimes you just have to wait and embrace that patience. And, and for guys like you and me, obviously, and, and many leaders out there, dude, that's so flipping hard. It is right. Like, no, no, no. We've been trained in the past hundred years. If you want something, you work, you do the task, you do the stuff, you make the things happen and you get there. And sometimes we, we trick our brain there. You know, the, there is some neurophysiology in there that when we constantly put ourselves under that level of stress, you know, deep inside the lizard brain, we are dripping stress hormone on a constant basis. And I've, I encounter this often in the work I do with, with leaders and organizations and even, you know, uh, uh, psychotherapy clients, when we're under that level of stress for too long, COVID being a great example or prolonged work stress. And then all of a sudden it's over, right? We recognize it's over, but the brain goes, no, 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 no. I'm going to keep dripping that stress hormone because you've got to be ready. That big saber tooth tiger is ready to jump out. You got to fight, flight, or freeze. And we find it really hard to relax, to slow down. And it takes a conscious effort to slow the brain down. We have to, as you and I were talking beforehand, we have to have those times outside, walking the dogs, walking in nature, just sitting quietly and and breathing or meditating so that the brain can get back to not being stressed. It's hard work. I feel like that's when you really get to know yourself too. 
that and it's terrifying, isn't oh, it? Oh, it's so terrifying. <laughs> and because I, I, I know this and I can I'll dive in just for half a second. And it's when I I I have to choose. I have selectively said that I'm not going to have any input or or conscious output going on. Um, we thank I'm blessed to be able to have a sauna in our garage, right? So I don't have to like go to the gym, which is very helpful with our physical location. Mm -hmm. So that is my quiet space. So mm. when I go in there, like there's no, there's no media, there's no audio books, there's no podcast. I don't even, I prefer no music and mm -hmm. it's just pure unbridled silence. And I get real excited about it up until the point when I open the door. And then, and then it's like, that's awesome. You, I know, I know who I am and I know a lot of my, a lot of my demons, or I, I should say, I know where a lot of them reside. And right. so, and I know we're going to get into it. I'm like, Oh gosh, like, am I, am I ready for this again? But it's, it's one of those things where when I, when I was at my best frequently and hitting it at least four or five times a week, yep. it's, you go in there and it's like, it's then it's more rejuvenating. It's not this battle. It's like, oh, I know where there's a little bit of smoke coming from a small little fire over there. Let's let's go walk around that and see what's mm -hmm. what's sparking those flames. Um, and so it's it, yeah, it's very. I think that silence is very important. I think removing yourself from from those outputs or those inputs is is crucial. I, I can tell you how important it is on so many levels. From you know mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, whichever way you want to go, but just overall it is, but it's so hard for us to do in our times. I know some of my greatest times, some of the times I've felt that the, the healthiest have been when I'm engaging in regular prayer or meditation practices in the morning. And that, like you said, though, at some point it gets to be a little much. I'm like, all right, I got to step back from that. Yep. And then I, I crave it I'm like, okay, just a little bit of quiet meditation, just, yes. a, you know, a little bit of that. And uh, it can change everything, but we don't give ourselves time enough for it. Nope, no, we certainly don't. And that's a. Uh, I think sometimes people get nervous with the lack of, um, right, a, a lack of purpose with it. Without they're saying, uh, there's like a lack of understanding of what the purpose of the silence is, and they go into right. Like, okay, what am I? I'm. I'm I as, have to be accomplishing something. What's right. the checklist for these moments of silence? And you, you can guide me. I forget if it was Young or, or Nietzsche, but this was staring into the abyss, right? And you know, um, um, to find I, yourself, uh, or to find like the the demons within or the dragons yeah. that you have to slay. Well, dragons is definitely Peterson. That's these definitely days, Peterson. I, I think, yeah, I think the the abyss may have been Nietzsche. I think I think that's I think that's right. And so. Uh, but they, that doesn't serve well enough as the purpose. Like, I'm not going to go like my purpose is to go stare into the abyss. I, nothing about that's appeasing. Yeah. I, what I used to walk myself into these was gratitude. And it's actually, it's my fallback in the stress. So when, when I'm in the sauna and it's like minute 45 mm -hmm. <laughs> and there, I'm like, Oh, what are, I, my mind starts going into, well, you could just, you've done a good job. Listen, you got to right. work out and you did good. If you stop now, like your body's still getting all these benefits. I, I go straight into gratitude. I have a yeah. hard time. My inner voice has a hard time peaking up while I'm engaging in gratitude. And so that's that's been my cheat code. Well, and we know, I mean, current research and anybody that follows Brene Brown knows that, you know, gratitude is huge and not just Brene Brown, but, you know, the, the modern research into it says that just coming up with a list, coming up with ideas, thinking through that, looking at what we're grateful for 
is, is so healing in so many positive ways. I know back when I used to work with uh, adolescent substance abuse um, clients, I was in a uh, an intensive program. Um, one of their homework assignments every week went, hey, come up with a gratitude list, see how far you can go. And like a hundred was just cool. I'm like, all right, who can come up with a thousand this week? And they're like, oh no, we can't do that. But when you sit and, and you you intentionally think about that, these guys would come back and like, oh dude, I came up with like 1200. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, that's awesome. And they it's... felt great about it. I mean, imagine if we just took time to come up with 10 each day. It rewires the way that you see the world around you. That's one mm -hmm. of the things that I talk about when I and when I'm working with business and I'm doing my training is that if you start incorporating conscious gratitude in the morning, in your mornings, just like you said, 10 things, spend mm -hmm. three and a half minutes. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be absurd, but start doing that, make it a habit. Mm -hmm. And it starts restructuring the way that you're seeing the world around you. And so when you yeah. see somebody doing something that you're really not interested in, then for me, that turned into, I am so, I've said this more times in the last three months than I think I, I ever, uh, my entire life previous to it. And it's, I'm so happy that people like you exist because if the world was full of me, that would never get done. Like I would <laughs> never in a million years do that desire to do that. But I'm so grateful that not only can you do it, you can do it very well. And mm -hmm. I'm appreciative of that. And it's just, just that kind of gratitude. Then that person's like, oh my gosh, like, mm -hmm. I don't even really enjoy doing this, but I appreciate the fact, you know, it turns into this right. whole cycle. Well, and I want to, you, you use the word restructure a couple of times. And I really want to hit on that. Like from a neurological point of view, we are honestly, I was just reading about this again this morning. Um, we, we can't always control our conditions, our circumstances, uh, the, the conditions we grew up with, the work we have to do, the brain we were given, um, but we always have the opportunity to change it. And literally gratitude, uh, healthy interactions, psychotherapy, truly rewires, reconnect, builds new connections, synapses, neurons in the human brain to, to strengthen it. So, I mean, if you want to go in a positive direction, these gratitude ideas can truly impact your the physical structure of your brain to make it healthier versus walking around angry and grumpy all day long. Yeah, it's it's going to change your brain. It's not going to be the way you want it to then. So <laughs> It's very true. Yeah. So obviously you're very um, well-read and you understand these topics extremely well. What was the, what was the motive, that kind of first thing that drew you in the direction of psychology? And was that <laughs> separate in line of of your interest in logotherapy? Was it, I, I'm interested, I want to be a therapist and then later on you discovered logotherapy. What was your kind of origin story in this regard? So I think of, I, I've thought of this in a few, especially recently, I can't remember, uh, it may have been a Jocko Willink podcast with some therapists, like trying to understand, I really don't know what got me into psychology. I actually had to ask my dad a little while ago, a few years ago, like, hey, Pops, what, why did you send me to college? And he, honestly, this was his answer. I mean, it was so... Ah, oh, so much meaning there, right? He just looks at me and goes, uh, that's what everybody else is doing, <laughs> right? Like literally. And I look back and I recognize I grew up in steel mill country, right? It was either, and, and many of my friends still work for the, uh, for the mills and truly are killing it, doing great work out there. Good for, good for them. I'm glad you guys are at it. I wound up in college. Um, 
and, and psychology was always an interest of mine. And honestly, I don't know why. Maybe it was Silence of the Lambs. That might have been that era or just trying to understand human interaction. You know, I, I had a basic course in high school uh, and, and just read a lot, you know, back in those days. I'm going to totally date myself here. Right. But like, I rem- man, this is embarrassing. I remember when the first Barnes and Noble opened up around our house. And I'm like, oh, I got to go find these. We got books to look at, man. <laughs> And I honestly, as I think about that, I was like, I was the nerd always at the library. Now, don't get me wrong. I would go with my buddies and we would take our comic books and we would photocopy pages of our comic books. So we can post them on our walls in our bedroom. But I was in the library, dude. So, I mean, that, yeah, that's right. <laughs> there was some osmosis going on there. Uh, so I go off to college because that's all my parents knew to do. Uh, I went to the what we like to call the Harvard of Muncie, Indiana, uh, Ball State, uh, Ball, oh, Ball State yeah. University. So, right. The Harvard of Muncie. And uh, I started out in psychology. And um, after my freshman year, I looked around and of the dozen or so people I hung around with, I was the only one left. And I'm wow. looking like, what? And, and they're all like, yeah, we uh, we got that magic letter that said, uh, good try, but don't come back. Wow. So I had a, a cool opportunity to reinvent myself. Uh, I played hockey there and uh, continued to study psychology. Some of the friends I, I played hockey with uh, one day said, hey, let's start a fraternity. I was like, I have no interest in this. They're like, ah, let's give it a try. So, okay, let's do it. Got nothing better to do besides study. And for me, that was a that was a a you know I could take all the classes in the world. That was a real life study in organizational psychology, management, working with a diverse group of individuals to accomplish a goal. And uh, man, I loved it. And uh, that was a great time. I loved it so much. Uh, you know, I, I took a, 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 I like to say college was the best nine or 10 years of my life. Um, now, I did walk away from from that university with two pieces of paper saying I studied for a certain amount of years and a wife. So it was a really good time. Yeah. Um, I went on to get my master's degree in counseling there and uh, went on to be a therapist, did some work in Indianapolis, Cincinnati, uh, Detroit, Chicago area for this adolescent substance abuse treatment program. And through that work, really refined my how I see therapy and helping people and then it was probably about you know I was done there I was going into private practice um we had lived kind of the city life with two young girls and finally decided my wife's originally from what I like to lovingly refer to as uh, Farmville Indiana and uh, it was a choice between go open up another substance abuse treatment center in the Chicagoland area or raise the kids in Farmville and so we decided to raise them in Farmville um, they still question that decision sometimes. <laughs> um, we're mostly happy with it. They are well on their way into, into their lives. My, my oldest is a college student. My youngest is a, a senior in high school. Wow. And so going back to about 10 years ago, I was rereading Man's Search for Meaning. I, for some reason, I know the exact reason it popped up. I'm a huge fan of, um, the HBO series Band of Brothers, World War II history. Yes. Oh, right. I, so, I, I, it's. I watch it every. I was in the eighty second, and so I am. All right, it was Whoa. it was it was it was uh, bred into us. But I didn't I didn't even watch it until I think after I left the Airborne entirely. But no it was very interesting. And now, ever since I watched it the first time, it has been an annual return to. Like yep. I, I will watch it again every single year, and it has that level of impact again every single year. It, it is, is an amazing story. I, I too, me and, and a group of my close uh, friends, mostly from college, we do it every year around Thanksgiving and Christmas time. 
Uh, we actually traveled to Georgia together to climb Curahy a couple years ago. That is incredible. It was it was really and, and now we're planning we're gonna do one of the one of the tours here in the next couple of years. Yes, we're planning on going. So um just that story, the history of World War II, those men and what they did. I mean, I think I've read every book from the gentleman that served, you know, Major Dick Winters. Yes. Um is, is huge in, in his philosophy and what I teach in leadership and, and organizational psychology. Um, all of that to say, I, I was reminded of this uh, psychologist, psychiatrist who was, you know, a concentration camp survivor in World War II. I'm like, oh yeah, what was that guy's name? Um, because as you experienced, and, and I talk about this a lot, he is a footnote in many psychology texts. And I believe, obviously, one that needs to be brought more to prominence. We are in such a a need to understand the search for meaning in our current times. And I believe this pre-COVID, but even more so now. So much so that my 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 uh, instructors through my doctorate program got tired of hearing me say more people need to know about this. I would Matt, I'm telling you, I wrote that different ways in almost every dang paper I wrote. And they're finally like, okay, you can stop now. We get the point. You know, quit writing it. Go do something about it. I said, okay. Well, that is incredible because yeah. I, I don't know if that's missing now generally from life or universities, but a call to action based on mm -hmm. somebody who is so driven by, by it, uh, especially such a specific idea and ideology. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't even classify it as that, but. We, we're that starting is, to call it a philosophy now. They, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. That is. That's powerful. Good, good on them. And so what was your response? Like good what? on them. And what a terrible mistake they made pushing me to go do that. Because now, <laughs> now I can't stop, Matt. Anybody that comes to me with a podcast, I'm like, yes, when I'm there, I'm on. I've got my own, you know, the meaning project. I yes. will speak to anybody, a uh, large group or small group. I will, you know, sometimes much to the frustration of my wife, like, yep, I'll, yep. What do you want me to talk? I'm there. I'm in. Let's talk about this. Because I believe it is so important in our current times to understand that we are all in the search for meaning. And even though meaning can be such a ethereal, nebulous concept, there are concrete ways by which we should be engaging this and, and seeking meaning in our lives. That's beautiful. That is insanely powerful. I could go with you for hours. We could turn this into a whole Joe Rogan experience and go for hours, but I know that we're both busy people. I don't want to take, <laughs> take a bunch of your time. Next time we'll set up a, a three hours and I believe Rogan pours, uh, what is it? He pours Buffalo Trace whiskey. So um, that's what allows him to go three hours. That's right. That's that's yeah. the, that's the juice. <laughs> that is. <laughs> but no, that would, uh, that would be incredible. I definitely... Um, look forward to being able to do this again. But if there's if there are organizations or if there are individuals that are interested in learning more, obviously, like you said, you had talked about the Meaning Project. They can they can go and listen to your episodes that you've done on there, which are incredible. Had some amazing guests on there. Um, and then, where else can they? Where where are you putting out information? Are are you active on social media? Are you Oh, do you have events coming on up? Social media. Um, most of the events I have coming up right now are, are private corporate events. Um, but if you want to have me at a private corporate event, or if you just want to chat, actually, somebody later this evening hit me up on the uh, from the podcast. He said, "Hey, you know, any direction I can go?" I said, "Yeah, you want to get on a Zoom call and talk about it?" 
um, this poor guy didn't know what he was getting in for because he just emailed me like, hey, what other resources can I read? I gave him a few lines. He's like, yep, I read those. I said, dude, we need to get on a Zoom call. Let's chat. And he's like, really? I, look, I'm, I'm not Joe Rogan, man. I, I, I want to be personal and connect with people. So if you want to talk to me about these kinds of things, you can find out more. All of this is at the one website, DanielAFranz.com. That's D-A-N-I-E-L-A-F-R-A-N-Z.com. Uh, the, the the podcast is there, the YouTube videos, what I do, who I am, and and the links to all of my uh, very poorly formatted social media attempts. Um, I'd like to think of myself as a good uh, logo therapist and speaker. I'm a terrible accountant and social media guru. So, well, one step at a time, ten percent better each day. There we go. <laughs> Don't try to be better than others. Try to be better than yourself, just a oh little bit each gosh, day. That's so. It's what. what... There are so many powerful, we could have ended this after like the first five minutes with the, the, the power and the value that was added. So thank you. Thank you so much. I My know pleasure, that Matt. everyone got a lot out of this. If you did, please like, please comment. If you had any questions, throw them in the comments and I can make sure that Dan gets them and we can, we can even further the conversation if you guys are interested. But again, thank you, Dan. I appreciate your time. This was incredible as always. Once I get to New York, I'm hoping for a round three. Oh, that would be awesome. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, perfect.